Many years ago, <clears throat> when I was still living in Edmonton, in our church there, we had a man who came, uh, a guest speaker, even though he wasn't uh, actually um, a preacher by trade, he uh, came to speak at our church, a Christian man who worked here at the Vancouver Aquarium uh, as an orca trainer, back when that was still you know, something that was considered good. Uh, nowadays, you know, it's, you know, they're banning that everywhere, and I understand there are abuses and whatnot, but this guy came and he spoke to us at uh, our church, and he shared some of his uh, stories of what it was like training those uh, majestic uh, animals, and uh, I only remember two things that he uh, told us. The first one was that he talked about when he was training a new orca and there was some kind of a platform that he had to go out onto over the water and uh, do something to communicate to this uh, uh, whale. And he said, uh, because he was experienced, uh, he recognized as it was coming out of the water that it meant him no good and it tried to snap him in half. Uh, it came out, and this guy, and he, because he was experienced, he recognized it early enough that he, you know, fell back on the platform, and uh, that's when he lost the lower half of his body. No, he didn't really. Uh, he did then something that is so counterintuitive. Uh, for me, that would be like, all right, I'm going to go drive a bus or something. <laughs> no more of this. But this guy said, after this thing, he said he knew he had to go right back out on the platform because otherwise that orca would think he's the boss. And this guy was establishing that he's the boss, which is kind of funny because even if he was a big guy and he weighed, you know, 220 pounds or something, here, and I don't know what an orca weighs, but it's got him beat. <laughs> this monstrous thing. So he, he says, I had to go back on the platform, stand there and do it again, and the animal caught it. The animal got it. The second thing he taught, which is more to the point of where we're going today, is that this guy, um, it per pertains to the intelligence of the animals. He said that people will often, you know, they get orcas to do all these kinds of incredible things that seem unnatural for a whale to do. When we were in San Diego many years ago, we went to uh, SeaWorld and saw, you know, again, these orcas jumping out of the water and they're lined up on a deck with people next to them. And again, I know that there's been a lot of, you know, stuff about that and people don't want these animals in captivity anymore and that kind of thing. But it's incredible that they can get them to do the kinds of things they will do. And he said people will say to them, Oh, they must be so intelligent. And he didn't say they're not intelligent, but he said, actually, what we're teaching them, he, he said, is similar to how all of us learn. He said, by simple repetition and reinforcement. 
he said, yeah, they're, they're smart, but it wasn't that you know, they've got, you know, a calculus doing orca that figures, oh, wait, now the angle, you know, and I can do this. No, it just was repetition. They get it to do this, and they, you know, and they reinforce it by what? Probably by food. Here's some salmon, here's whatever, you know, they feed the thing, and so it'll keep doing that. It isn't just intelligence, it's just simple repetition, which brings me to us. It isn't just about intelligence with following God. But some things we learn and we reinforce and we set a good groove. If in the negative we would call it a rut, so we'll call it a groove. We set something by repetition. We learn, hey, when I do this, there's this result. And so, and I think God put inside of us a certain appreciation for repetition, amen? Certain things we repeat over and over because something is good about it. There's a good result. So, from ancient times, God has used repetition to establish and reinforce and perpetuate what's true and right among his people. He set the weekly Sabbath in place and told his people, this will be good for you. There's this rhythm in the week that give that day over to worship and to rest and not just, I'm going to get ahead by doing this and this and this weekly rhythm. And there was a repetition. He set other Sabbaths in place. And he said, when you think of something like um, uh, Passover, God told them from this time forward, every year on this month, On this day, I want you to take this lamb and you do this particular thing. Now, there's also that it was prophetic and looking ahead to when the real lamb of God would come. But he set this thing in partly so that when the real thing happened, it would be like, hey, wait a minute. This is what we've been practicing all these years. That repetition, that thing has been set in their heads so that when the lamb of God comes and he dies and sheds his blood, it's like, I recognize this. And if how many here have ever been part of a Passover dinner? A Seder. Yeah. There, there's symbolism in it that is incredible and hard to imagine that everybody doesn't look at it and say, whoa, this is exactly what happened to Jesus. It's in there. The gospel was being proclaimed. And God used these multi-sensory means, this meal, it's it's cool because kids are involved in a certain way and there's, there's smells, there's food. I mean, we enjoy eating. So God, I mean, it's brilliant that he would do this. Here's a way to pass on this, the truth through this tradition in your families to each successive generation with words spoken, songs sung, um, foods eaten, things held. They have to hide a certain thing at one point, And they do all of these things. So they use these repetitive, but good repetitive traditions to teach something, to reinforce it so that every year Passover would come around and it's just like the season we're in now. It's like, oh, I love this time. There's music, there's songs, there's um, uh, foods that we eat. You know, some things only at this time of year. There's certain things we do and it reinforces, it causes us to remember 
and it reinforces the truth. It renews us in the truth and revives us with life because that's the point, amen? I'm not really just into Christmas because it's about a, a, you know, a quaint story about a Jewish mother, you know, somewhere in Palestine having a baby, you know, in less than perfect conditions. Oh, how quaint, you know, and, you know, and shepherds came and sheep and cattle were in a stable smiling, like on the cards, you see, you know, all those kind of things. No, not, I could care less if that was all it was. I really couldn't care less. The greater story behind it is that the Savior came. Why? So we could have life. That's like when we strip the stuff away. Why? Why is this such a big deal? And why do we celebrate this? Why do we go through this? Why do we repeat these things? Why, why is this season so special? Because behind it all stands that guy again, Jesus stands the Savior. Again, it keeps coming back to him. In Israel, they had, you read the Old Testament, they had all these supernatural encounters that were glorious. And I would tend to think, if I, if I was on the edge of the Red Sea and I saw the waters parted and walked through with a wall on either side, I wonder what that, I mean, were there fish swimming right up to the edge of the wall? Like, huh. Can't get over to the other side right now. You know, maybe they were even leaping across. I don't know, but a wall of water. And we're walking through and thinking, exactly how is this doing this now? The, the laws of physics are kind of suspended. That water is just, how is this possible? I would kind of think that if I saw that, I would say, oh, I believe. Yeah. Never another doubt. Yeah. And yet... I know what human nature is like. I do doubt. I've seen some great things, not quite like that, in not, not a physical thing like that. But this kind of stuff, they have these supernatural encounters. But over time, what happened? They became just legends and myths and fanciful tales. At best, they became historical things that were like, man, did God move in our past. Boy, these days just kind of stink by comparison, but boy, God was with us in those days. Sorry, that is not good enough. He's the living God, and I believe that God put those things there to keep fresh and relevant the reality of the living God. He didn't just put some of these things in so that they would just remember and say we had a glorious history. No, he did it so that they would continue to turn to the God who can reconcile us to himself, to the God of life, to the God of power, to the God of love. This Advent season, Advent Christmas season, is full of sensory stimulation. Uh, Of of course, not all of it is pointing to Christ, uh, but that's why it's essential for us as believers to remember what's true about Christmas, to uh, and his and Christ's arrival to reinforce the truth by understanding what was written about it. Truly, what is written about it, and to be renewed in our faith and revived in the life we have from God. It's it's essential that we do that, and we don't get caught up just with all of the trappings of Christmas. Now, I'm not. Uh, I really am not trying to just, you know, be down on the world and say, oh, it's so materialistic and all those kinds of things. I, not all that kind of stuff. 
But the reality behind it, it isn't just a family time. Or, as with Hallmark movies, it isn't just about romance. What? Yeah. It's about deeper things. Now, I know that's close to heresy, um, because I know that those things are really popular. But there, there are bigger fish to fry, so to speak. There's a Savior that came at this time. We, every year at this time, this, the traditions we have as believers should be keeping relevant who Jesus is and why he came. And the real joy of this season is that God took care of our big problem. The big problem that we're all sifting through and people are, you know, groping in the darkness, lost, and we don't quite know, how do I find fulfillment? How do I get satisfied? What's wrong? Something's not quite right. Well, that's why Jesus came. And this season keeps pointing to that, pointing to that, disclosing that, disclosing him. So it's important for us and not just on an intellectual level, to understand the realities of Jesus' birth. But there's an emotional connection to them as well. Something that this is real. We feel what Jesus did. An emotional connection to the reality that, Christ, that Christmas points to. Even with each other, even together. Maybe more than any other season, there's something about the emotional reality of us together saying, we're part of the collective human race that was lost. That God sent his son, as Matteo just read, God so loved the what? The world that he gave his only son. He loved it. He looked at it and it seems like, well, gosh, if he loved it, why doesn't he do... Why doesn't he take care of some things? That's what he was doing. Exactly what he was doing by sending his son to take care of it. Now, I also, I want to just say a word as I was preparing this. I I felt necessary to say this. More than any other season, there's something about uh, this season bringing people together. Uh, Most of us make an attempt to be with uh, family or friends, that kind of thing, at Christmas. I know for some, many in fact, that that's exactly why this season is uh, maybe painful and maybe challenging and hard uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, Loved ones that are gone, uh, estrangement from loved ones. Uh, I heard on the radio a couple of years ago about a consulting business. The business is specifically exists to talk to people about how to navigate uh, Christmas holidays with uh, broken families. You know, where somebody might say, oh, well, my mom's going to be upset because I'm going to be with my dad. And, you know, things like this where I wouldn't think of that. But, you know, somebody can say, well, here's some ways that you might do that. It's in, so this season, I recognize is challenging for a lot of people. Disappointment and pain and those kinds of things. So in this time, let's, let's even be alerted. Uh, 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 let's be attentive to that, that there might be some people around us for whom the very things that's, that are culturally delightful about this time might be a real challenge. So 
I just say that, Father, we pray even now that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might be sensitive to some of those kinds of needs and we might help to um, bring comfort and bring life and bring um, you into circumstances that are less than ideal. Amen? Amen. Okay, that might be for somebody. Okay, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has been conceived, sorry, has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So it's, I think, unfortunately easy to read this and think that Mary, like in classical art, had a halo. That, you know, God, you know, the angel found it easy to find her because there was the girl with the halo. No, she actually looked like us. She didn't have a ring above her head that um, everywhere she went, that thing followed her. Now, I, I don't doubt that she was, by the favor of God, a young woman of character. And she was young, I would say kind of a blank slate, because she was pretty young, probably didn't uh, have a lot of experience in a lot of things yet, because she was possibly... Uh, what we would consider quite young for our cultural norms today. So here's, here's uh, Mary. She's normal. She's ordinary. She's not. She might be a, a young woman of character, but don't think of her as something way different than the, the young women you know. She's highly favored by God, though, just as Gabriel announces. And I think, what a magnificent honor for this angel to show up to be chosen and announce you're highly favored and to announce that she's to be the woman who would have the privilege and the responsibility of giving birth to the Son of God. And wow, you, maybe it sounds like, wow, what a privilege. But imagine also the responsibility. You're going to care for this child who's God in the flesh. I I sort of think, you know, you read later in Luke, 
they went to, it says when he was about, when Jesus was about 12 years old, and they went to uh, Jerusalem to offer the sacrifice, and then they're there, you know, a kind of a caravan, I guess families would go together, and they leave, and Jesus isn't with his parents directly, but it sounds like that must be sort of a normal thing. They assumed uh, that he was with some of the other relatives, and they went about a day's journey before they realized he's not there. I think, what a responsibility. It's like, oh my goodness, we lost God. (laughs) We we lost him. You know, we were given one responsibility, you know, your kid, and we lost God. (laughs) We lost the hope of the world. Imagine, Mary's a young girl betrothed to a man. That was customary for about a year, typically, uh, or until he had a home. Quite ordinary, perhaps, you know, perhaps just sort of reaching the age of accountability. The age where she's, uh, uh, you know, accountable for some things. Nazareth was quite ordinary as well. It's a typical place, except it also was near a highway that the Romans used And apparently, it was kind of a morally bankrupt place. So context, or contextually, the town that she lived in, reasonably small, but morally corrupt. Judaism at the time was being pulled in two different directions. On one side, there was sort of a compromise and buying into worldly things with the Sadducees where they were just sort of saying, well, let's just go with the flow of the world and things will be easier for us, not not unlike things going today. And on the other side were the Pharisees who originally were champions of Judaism, keeping it from being uh, polluted when the Greeks uh, uh, took over the world for a brief stint. And the the Pharisees rose up to sort of um, uh, preserve true Judaism. But now they've sort of been entrenched in what you'd call a kind of spiritless legalism where they, they care more about not the laws of God even, but the, their um, imposed rules on the people, where there's kind of a, a, a void, a lack of the spirit, a, a lack of heart. So they've got, that's the, that's the spiritual context of the day, the city context. Then you've got Mary, Contextually, just a young girl who's there, you know, uh, doing what's normal. She's betrothed, um, living. She wasn't surrounded by all things bright and beautiful. And the angel comes in and says, favored one, hail, favored one. That's, what does he mean by that? Endowed with grace. That's what it means. It it wasn't favored one. You're favored above everybody else because you're better than everybody else. No. Hail favored one. You've you've received favor, an endowment, an endowment of favor from God. It's been freely bestowed. She didn't earn it, just like we don't today. You have found favor with God. Actually, you know, it's funny in the message translation, which, how many know the message translation? It's a very, um, uh, it's a paraphrase, and some of the things are worded really well, 
but uh, Eugene Peterson, who just passed away in the last year, I think, um, he uh, wrote the message translation. And some things are really kind of casual. There's a line in here, actually, where the angel says, um, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. In the message, it says, don't, don't be afraid, Mary. God has a surprise for you. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. A young girl. It's like, you know, I'm pregnant. Surprise. <laughs> you know, like, really? He has a surprise for you? It's just a funny way of putting that. But here he says, you've got a, you, favor has been freely bestowed on you. What about you? You're not here by accident. You're not listening ever to what God says about anything by accident. God knows you. God is favorably disposed to you. In the same way, the word can mean received. The word grace or favor. It can mean received. Like when somebody would say in uh, certain circles, like in the Old South, they would say, oh, well, that person isn't received. Or they are received into somebody's home. Oh, it means they've been welcomed. They've got favor. So here the angel says to Mary, you've been welcomed. You have been received by God. You've been, grace has been freely bestowed on you. The door is open. He's not forcing you through. Just like he didn't force Mary through. But he opened it wide and welcomed her to trust him, to walk with him, to know him for a life of purpose and trust. And the door is open to you. We actually now are favored ones as well. In fact, maybe I'm making too much of this, but in Jesus, I'm going to turn there for just a second. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus' first sermon in this book, after he's been baptized, The Holy Spirit comes upon him. The Holy Spirit takes him out into the wilderness to be tempted. He comes back in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then his first sermon is this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. He's quoting Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed here it is to proclaim the favorable year of the lord his the point was jesus saying this is why i've come to proclaim this is the time of god's favor and who's he talking to anybody who listen anybody who hears him anybody with ears to hear that's what he says It's the year of the Lord's favor. I want to make known to you people. That's Jesus saying that. That this is the time of God's favor. He's not angry at you and saying stay out. Keep out. No, the door is open. He's welcoming. It's the time of his favor. And he's... He comes, he says to Mary, you've been received, you've been welcomed, you've got favor on you, and I'm calling you in. Then, through her, the Savior is born to go out and invite everybody and say that that, that favor extends now not even just to this one 
young Jewish girl, not even just to the Jewish people, but now beyond Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Thank God. Somebody say, thank God. That's what God's favor is for us. His favor is for us. So she's visited by this angel. In fact, there's not another story in the Bible, except perhaps the book of uh, Revelation, where there is as much angelic activity. Joseph is approached by angels. You back up in chapter 1 of Luke and uh, Elizabeth's husband that it mentions to Mary. He was visited by an angel. The Magi get a word from there. Uh, Joseph had probably three or four different times that an angel spoke to him. Mary has this. This whole thing, the shepherds, they see the angels in, in heaven. So there was something going on. God sending these angelic visitors to, to proclaim the truth to his people. So all of this is happening. And the, the angel says, Mary, don't be afraid. You've found favor with God. You're viewed favorably. And then no more beating around the bush. Then he starts to say, you're going to conceive a son in your womb. Which I sort of think is funny in your womb. Like, where else? Uh, it's just when I read, I think that's sort of a funny thing. Like, you know, thanks for clarifying. You know, uh, you're going to name him Jesus. We know very little about Mary. We know very little about Mary, very little about Joseph, very little about everybody. But we get to, we start hearing a lot about Jesus. A son, he's going to be great. You're going to name him Jesus. That's a common name. That was ordinary at the time. But now Gabriel starts raising the stakes here. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high God. And now I'm wondering, Mary's like, okay, what? Because she was perplexed, remember, at first. She didn't know where this was going. Says so she was perplexed by his greeting, not terrified. Perplexed, because she, what kind of greeting is this? What is this guy here to do, this angel? So now he's saying, you're going to have a son. He's going to be called the son of the most high. Okay, that's pretty ambitious. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. That's a messianic statement, and I don't really know if Mary would have picked it up. She might have, uh, because, you know, their culture was steeped in, in those promises. Um, uh, but, you know, I don't know if she would have or not, um, but whether she's getting all of that. And then he says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, over Israel, forever. Okay, that's very messianic. Uh, I, you know... Forever, like this is the son I'm going to have. And her response seems to indicate that she understands, even if she doesn't get that he's talking about Messiah, she may or may not. She questioned later when Jesus was in his earthly ministry. But she's, she does understand that he means something extraordinary about the pregnancy. It seems to indicate, she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? So she knows the angel doesn't mean later when you marry Joseph. Something about what he presents, she seems to catch it. That he means something extraordinary uh, and sooner than that. That he's not talking about her later life. How can that be since I'm a virgin? Okay, and yet she asks how. 
She's not doubting. She's just saying, how is this going to go? He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you or envelop you. And I hear this and I think the same God, Mary would have known the first verses of her Bible. The the second verse of the book of Genesis says this in the begin well first verse in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth second verse the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of god was moving over the surface of the waters over the s- so there's a void and the holy spirit is poised over it and then it says God said, let there be light, and the Holy Spirit went into action. And, and form came. The material universe began to come. Now here's the angel saying, Mary, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And now, so he did that over the surface of the deep, over the void, and brought the material world material universe into being now he it's like he's hovering over this young girl's womb and the word as john 114 says the word itself is going to take form inside this girl i think wow the things that are aligning for god to do this thing where the holy spirit's going to overshadow you and the word itself is going to take human form beginning with like the tiniest speck inside Which, to me, it's pointing to the reality that God gives an identity even preconception. God, even before conception, God knows what's going to happen there. And and now, oh, well, that's maybe just Jesus. No, he did the same thing earlier in the chapter when he spoke to Zechariah. Your wife's going to give birth and your son's going to be this. And he already knew the identity and he spoke to this reality. So here's the Holy Spirit overshadowing this girl to bring about the word of life in human form inside of her. God's spirit and power will do what is otherwise naturally impossible. God's a God of order. We have natural laws that we count on for all kinds of things. We know, and Mary knew, the natural order. That's why she said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. She knows the natural order. But by God's spirit and his power, he was about to do something extraordinary. In terms of the natural order, he's going to He's going to change things to do, to welcome and win humanity back to true life and relationship with himself. He's going to go sort of beyond what we see as the natural order. The point of doing what seems impossible, and he says that in verse 37, with God, nothing will be impossible. And it seems after, he, after Mary said, how can this be? The angel even said, uh, even your your relative Elizabeth has conceived in her old age. She conceived in her old age. You're going to conceive as a virgin. I mean, what he did with Elizabeth was done a couple of times in the Bible. 
what he did with Mary was never done any other time. But he seems to be stirring her faith, saying, listen, with God, nothing's impossible. He did this with your relative. He's going to do it in you. He's going to do something extraordinary. And the point of doing what seems impossible is in regard to the coming of the Savior. The point of which is humanity reconciled. Reconciled to God. This favored girl supernaturally, or supernaturally moved upon by the Holy Spirit, will be the human source through which the saving one, the favorable one, will come and announce God's favor.